0: From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President, Tony Perkins.
1: And where it's possible, where our interests are, coincide, we're going to work together like we do. We must be clear. Democracy is on the ballot. Your freedom is on the ballot.
2: ...based by China's horrid human rights record. CEOs of BlackRock, Apple, Pfizer, and others dined with the dictator last night. And we're going to talk with Seamus Bruner who is the director of research at the Government Accountability Institute a little later in the program. And to contrast how the Biden administration is falling over itself to accommodate China, look no further than poor African countries like Uganda that refuse to change their laws on abortion and homosexuality. What is the Biden administration doing to them? Ariel Del Turco. Program. And you probably have heard by now, Claudine Gay, the president of Harvard University, resigned this week following her equivocating testimony before Congress as to whether calling for the genocide of Jews violated a campus code of conduct, as well as there being significant documented evidence that her thin academic resume was littered with plagiarism. But now the left wants you to believe that she is simply being attacked by conservatives for being a black woman.
3: And there's no intellectual inquiry about it. They're just trying to take out any woman or person of color who leads elite universities so they can give them to the people they prefer, which is the guys used to have
4: in the 50s.
2: Wow, well that was MSNBC's Joy Reid. And I will actually be speaking with one of the academics whose work Claudine Gay actually plagiarized. Dr. Carol Swain, uh, we'll be getting her reaction and, uh, frankly, also her thoughts as to why uh, diversity training both contributed to Gay's rise as well as her fall as president there at Harvard. And earlier today, U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland made these remarks regarding the Justice Department's crusade against anyone they consider to be tied to the events of January 6th.
5: We are following the facts and the law wherever they lead. We are enforcing the law without fear or favor. We are honoring our obligation to protect the civil rights and civil liberties of everyone in our country. We are upholding the rule of law, and we are protecting the American people.
2: Really? Well, given what we've seen from this Department of Justice... Quite frankly, it seems that a lot of American people actually need protection from them, not by them. Harrison Ford, a 2020 Trump campaign aide, is a recent case in point. Uh, Recently released body cam footage of his arrest last February has some actually wondering if Special Prosecutor Jack Smith and the FBI literally set up this encounter in a way for it to easily turn violent. Well, I'll be speaking with Floyd's attorney for the details a little bit later in the program. And then Bishop Garland Hunt, newly installed as the president at the Douglas Leadership Institute following the death of our dear friend and colleague, Dean Nelson. He'll also be joining me with his thoughts on all of this. So a lot to cover. Please keep in mind our website in case you miss any of today's program. You can always go back and catch it at TonyPerkins.com. Also, there's tons of valuable resources there for you, so don't miss out on that great uh, website, tonyperkins.com. All right, let's go and jump into the program for today. This afternoon, President Biden, as I spoke earlier, uh, traveled to the battleground state of Pennsylvania using the historic site of Valley Forge for a campaign speech at the location where the Continental Army literally commanded by General George Washington, endured a winter encampment before they defeated defeated the British uh, crown. Well, uh, by the way, speaking of that winter encampment from President George Washington, today President Biden spoke there, but his speech was rescheduled. It was supposed to be tomorrow on the third anniversary of January 6th, but due to weather concerns, they changed it to today. So uh, the similarities between George Washington and Joe Biden uh, are not that numerous. We'll just put it that way. Nonetheless, President Biden uh, did not allow the weather changing his schedule to stop him from borrowing a phrase that George Washington used when he claimed that the upcoming presidential election might test uh, whether or not democracy remains a sacred cause for our nation. Well, how will this message play? Frankly, now that so much of the American public increasingly is rejecting Biden's uh, January 6th narrative. Well, joining me now to discuss this is Congressman Ron Estes. He serves on the House Committee on Ways and Means as well as the Budget Committee and the Committee on Education and Workforce. He represents the 4th Congressional District of the great state of Kansas. Congressman Estes, welcome back to Washington White Watch. Great to have you.
4: Well, thank you, Jody. Happy New Year to you. It's good being with you again.
2: Well, thank you so much and Happy New Year to you as well. All right, let's begin with your reaction to the president's first campaign speech of the year today.
4: Yeah, it's really interesting that, uh, that that's going to be his strategy on a campaign because he can't run on his record. He's had three years of failure, whether it's talking about the inflation that they've created. I mean, they've even gone out and had to create new statistics for inflation around a six-month inflation act because they've been so bad uh, in terms of their numbers. They've created an environment where Putin could invade uh, uh, Ukraine uh, and embolden Iran to go uh, uh, support Hamas in their attack on Israel. Uh, They killed and and created an incentive in uh, Afghanistan where the terrorist – not only took over Afghanistan, but were able to kill several servicemen, uh, men and women uh, in, in Afghanistan. So it's really, it's really su- not surprising that they're trying to deflect from that record. But it is very hypocritical uh, that President Biden wants to talk about uh, threats to democracy. When you talk about his internal revenue service, uh, won't, af- won't go after and charge his son uh, and collect the taxes from him, had to get a court order to actually make that happen. The Department of Justice uh, goes after parents because they want to make sure that their children uh, have good education. Uh, they go after pro-life uh, supporters because just because they have a different political view. So it, it really is an abysmal record that the President Biden has in terms of a threat to democracy on his own av- avenue.
2: Yeah, those are some excellent points, Congressman, and as I shared in the, in the opener. Uh, President Biden is somehow asserting that a vote against him in November would be a vote against freedom and democracy. In fact, uh, let's go ahead. I've got another clip that, that is along those similar lines. I'd like to play this and get your reaction.
1: This is the first national election since January 6th. Insurrection placed a dagger at the throat of American democracy since that moment. After all we've been through in our history, from independence to civil war, to two world wars, to a pandemic, to insurrection, I refuse to believe that in 2024, we Americans will choose to walk away from what's made us the greatest nation in the history of the world.
2: Well, wow, you just gave us several examples I wanted to play this, but give me your thoughts on this claim that Americans who don't vote for Biden this November are somehow against freedom, democracy, and these things that make our nation so
4: great actually a vote for biden is a vote uh, that's a threat to democracy just because you look at what he's done with the federal government and how much he's used that to go after attacking the average everyday american citizens who want to raise their kids who want to do their job who want to want to focus on uh, the freedoms that they enjoy whether it's uh being able to advocate uh, for a political position or not and you know the only thing that uh, uh, i could say that's a similarity is that in valley Forge. There's uh, winter weather during George Washington's time, and there's winter weather in January uh with Biden's in office, but there's certainly no no statesmanship coming out of President Biden's office that you compare to, to President Washington
2: Good point if I can because our time is slipping away. I'd like to uh, switch topics if I can you were you have just come back from a border trip and you have witnessed firsthand just how enormous the crisis has become. Uh, you were
4: there. Uh, tell us what you saw. Yeah, it really is. I've, I've been to the border uh, uh, before, and, and conditions are still the same. I mean, you see people that are just blatantly walking across the river, walking across the border, and the Biden administration is not doing anything to stop it. I mean, it was very successful policies that the United States had when President Trump was in office. The Remain in Mexico policy was a great policy of keeping folks who came to the United States, trying to cross the border, uh, and did not have a legal reason to do that. Keep them in Mexico before they came across the border. Uh, and now the, the the Biden administration with Secretary Mayorkas, basically they've opened the doors. They've allowed anybody to come across. They've distorted the processes and the laws that we had uh, in terms of uh, the parole process, which was intended to be on a unique case by case situation. They've basically opened it up for uh, people from countrywide uh, to come in uh, to the country. Uh, as I said, the, 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 the remain in Mexico policy was a great policy that actually kept people in Mexico so that they didn't come into the United States to overwhelm our border patrol. And one of the things that I took away from uh, being down at Eagle Pass was that when the cartels surge people across the border and the border patrols pulled into having processed those individuals, they're not patrolling the border and it makes us unsafe with all the folks that come across the border. And, and we need to get back to those good policies. We need to put those in place. Secretary Majorca should be doing that instead of telling Congress he has operational control of the border, uh, because it was very evident that he does not.
2: Well, the very evident. Last question here for you. When Congress returns next week, I'm thrilled to see what appears to be great unity. Uh, with the, With the conference over this issue, but how will we see this border crisis play out as the spending negotiations come back to the table once you come back next week
4: yeah we 've got a lot of things uh, going on and you know talking about the border we you, you know the House has passed the hr two and, and the Senate needs to pick that up. Senate needs to get to work on several things, uh, not just the border security uh, but also uh, as we talk through this uh, negotiations on spending uh... We, we can't continue down the same path that we've been the last several years and just continue to spend more and more every year and 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 say that's a, an adequate approach it's it's not right uh, as we're seeing now our national debts continuing to grow twenty twenty three was a tipping point in terms of the amount of money that was borrowed compared to our discretionary spending and, and we've got to work to, to restrain that spending and we've got some tough choices, and we've got to be able to make those, uh, both on the discretionary side as well as some of those automatic spending programs as well.
2: Well, Kansas, con- Kansas Congressman Ron Estes, we are so grateful that you are one in the driver's seat there. Thank you so much for joining us on Washington Watch. We look forward to having you back on here as these stories continue to unfold. All right, friends, coming up after the break with the 2024 elections just months away, The whole issue of election integrity and the efforts to create election integrity is a major issue. We'll be speaking with Jason Sneed with Honest Elections about this right after the break. Stay tuned.
6: Welcome back to
2: Washington Watch. Great to have you joining us today. With the a presidential election year now literally upon us, increased scrutiny of election integrity efforts is as paramount as it's ever been. I mean, we've seen corruption infiltrate so many institutions, and all this really just demonstrates why vigilant oversight of state election processes remains Extremely important for us to monitor throughout this year. A recent Florida bill strengthened requirements for maintaining lists of voters. Good step forward. Uh, Some lawmakers in my own state of Georgia plan to consider several options to make those elections uh, more transparent and trustworthy. So we're seeing some states try to make some efforts, but how can we encourage other state legislators to consider similar approaches? Well, joining me now to discuss this is Jason Sneed. He's the executive director of Honest Elections. Jason, welcome to Washington Watch. Great to have you.
0: It's
7: great to be here. Thank you.
2: Well, listen, election integrity issues, as we all know, it's going to continue to dominate so many discussions this year. But before we go into the the big picture, tell us about some of these recent stories that we've seen on the topic, such as what I just referenced coming out of Florida
7: well we've seen some enormous strides that states across the country have made in the last three years making it easier to vote and harder to cheat by, for instance, making it easier to clean up voter rolls, which is an important foundational step to ensuring that you have election integrity. So we saw articles just this week that Florida has actually removed a significant number of outdated registrations pursuant to a new law that they just adopted to make that process easier. And we've seen other headlines as well. For instance, Florida also created a unit to allow it to investigate uh, potential election. Malfeasance. And that's something which more states need to be doing because all too often potential election crimes go uninvestigated and unprosecuted. And that allows a, a cancer to metastasize in our democratic process when people know that they can commit election fraud and get away with it because no one's going to check to see what actually happened after the fact.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, and there are some other states that are following suit. Uh, Georgia, for example, my home state. Fill us in on what uh, type of things they're looking at.
5: Well,
7: Georgia is uh, an important state to consider because they have endured three years of endless attacks from the left. Everything that they have tried to do since the 2020 election to improve elections uh, in the state of Georgia has been attacked as Jim Crow 2.0, even though the state has now held historically high turnout elections in 2022 and completely disproved that myth. Uh, But nevertheless, Georgia has also shown us how important it is to make iterative changes every single year to the election system. Not changes for the sake of change, but changes because is every time you hold an election, you learn something that hasn't gone uh, correct and you need to fix it, or another state tries something and you want to emulate their success in your own state. Elections are constantly changing because we're constantly looking for improvements, and Georgia has shown the way. This year, Georgia is considering some additional changes to their election law that would strengthen and improve the voting process for all voters, and that includes potentially even changes to the absentee system. This is something I think more states need to look closely at. It's important to protect vulnerable mail votes and ensure that if you are choosing to cast a ballot by mail, that you can ensure that that ballot is actually going to be properly counted and that it isn't going to be tampered with or interfered with by vote trafficking or other operations. So I think that we need to have more states doing what Georgia has already done, improving and securing that process, and then looking for ways to generally make sure that we have elections that flow smoothly for all voters.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I actually have a book coming out supposedly, hopefully at the end of next month on election integrity, and that is one of the issues that I deal with that is so important. This whole issue of mail-in votes is a is a uh, it's just open season for problems if you don't get it right. How important, Jason, is it for other state legislators to be examining similar efforts? So, we go across the nation. How important is this nationwide
7: no, I think that this is easily a top five issue. And I say that because even though each one of us has issues that aren't directly related to elections at first blush that we may be very passionate about, we we may think that abortion is the signature issue that we're voting on. We may think it's national security. We may think it's the China problem or ESG. But if we don't get elections right, none of those other issues matter. That's something that the left frankly understands. They understand that if they can change the rules and change the process, they can change the results of the elections. And that's why they're trying everything that they can to rewrite our election rules. If they can't get it done in legislatures, they run to courts and they get judges, uh, often activist judges, to issue rulings that essentially rewrite election laws. They're trying to, get, to do that in Georgia, in Florida, in key battleground states right now. They're trying to influence elections with the reemergence of Zuck Bucks. Uh, this is a problem in 2020 with private money that was flowing into election offices and was being used for what looks like partisan get-out-the-vote efforts from within in government, Now they've got a new program, the U.S. Alliance for Election Excellence, which is active in a number of states, including states like Georgia, that have banned uh, this, uh, this problem. And we see other attempts to completely change the way that we conduct elections with ranked-choice voting potentially 10 states will, uh, will have the opportunity to vote on a constitutional amendment being pushed from the left to fundamentally alter elections with this new system called, uh, called ranked-choice voting. So it is essential that state lawmakers across the country constantly be mindful of their election laws, constantly be looking for ways to improve it. The left isn't stopping, and so conservatives who believe in election integrity cannot either.
2: All right, last question. Let's kind of land the plane on this, because obviously at the end of the day, what we want is for voters to have faith that their vote will count. So what can our viewers and our listeners do in their home states to help push for voter integrity efforts?
7: Well, I think that the most important thing you can do is educate yourself on the problems and the solutions. And in fact, my organization, the Honest Elections Project, has an entire report dedicated to what you need to do in order to make sure that you have elections that you can have confidence in. I also commend to folks the Heritage Foundation's Election Integrity Scorecard, which also lays out the key principles that every state needs to have in order to have elections that you can trust. And I encourage you to talk to your neighbors, talk to your fellow members of your communities and talk to your lawmakers as well and make sure that they understand that this is an urgent issue, that this is an important issue. We have to get elections right and we have to keep our eye on the ball. It's a lot easier to keep a reputation of trust and honesty than to regain it if you lose it. And right now, unfortunately, trust in our democratic process is fragile. So we should always be doing everything that we can to make it easier to vote, but also harder to cheat.
2: Jason Sneed from Honest Elections, so, thank you so much for joining us on Washington Watch. Great input. All right, friends, coming up after the break, Claudine Gay, the president of Harvard, resigned this week. And I'll by, be joined by one of the academics that she actually plagiarized after the break. You don't want to miss this. Stay tuned. Be right back in a moment. And welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm your Friday host, Jody Heiss. Glad to have you joining us today. All right, this week, Claudine Gay resigned as president of the Harvard University following her abysmal testimony to Congress last year, where she equivocated regarding calls for the genocide on the Harvard campus, uh, as well as some repeated patterns of plagiarism throughout her really thin academic resume. But while the evidence of plagiarism began to become public actually late last year, reports indicate that the Harvard board was notified of Gay's academic fraud months ago, but apparently chose to suppress the information while at the same time threatening to sue organizations that might report on it. Gay and others in the legacy media now claim that the emergence of all these facts was somehow a conservative hit job. So let's try to set the record straight. Uh, Joining me now is one of the academics that Claudine Gay actually plagiarized. Dr. Carol Swain is the senior fellow at the Institute for Faith and Culture and a former tenured professor at Princeton and Vanderbilt Universities. Dr. Swain, welcome back to Washington Watch. Great to have you.
3: Same here. Thank you so much. All
2: right. Now, you did not go seeking to be involved in, in the story of Claudine Gay in Harvard. Uh, tell us your reaction when you learned that she had plagiarized your work.
3: Well, it was December 10th, and it was a Sunday evening after our Christmas program. I came home, and they were all there were messages and a phone call from someone very prominent in the nation that told me that the president of Harvard University had plagiarized uh, her uh, writings. And guess who she plagiarized? And see, I'm still listening. He goes, you. And I was told to go look at Chris Rufo's Twitter page. And there I saw... You know my name, and at that time, I think they had four incidences of her plagiarism. I was cautious at first that night. I tweeted out imitation is the highest form of flattery. If this is true, I blame her committee or her colleagues and uh and other people that should have checked her work, something like that. I wanted to do my own investigation, and so the next day I started reading her work. I started with her articles, and then later I read her her dissertation. I went from a range of emotions. First it was shock, then it was deep sadness for her and for myself, and then anger, a lot of anger. And I don't get angry easily, but the anger came when Harvard decided to stand behind her and redefine plagiarism, uh, to call it duplicative language rather than plagiarism.
2: Yeah, and let's go there, Dr. Swain, because that likewise just shocked me. Uh, and, and you just uh, segued into this whole thing. What, what was your reaction to all the academics in Gay's Corner literally coming out in defense of plagiarism? It's astounding.
3: Well, one of the things I did on December 17th was publish an article in the Wall Street Journal that laid out uh, pretty much my position on the matter. But I was shocked because some of the scholars who were identified were people that I've known ever since I've been in in political science. And I have um, respected their work. That uh, I found deeply disturbing that they thought that it was okay to pleasurize if they say it's okay after the fact, uh, it it, would, it doesn't make any sense. And so I did not expect academics or distinguished political scientists, according to Harvard, Harvard Harvard's corporation, to argue that what Claudine Gay did, at first, you know, we thought it was a few uh, times, then a few dozens, and now we know that it's 50 or above for them to try to defend that. And I became deeply involved, not just because of the instances involved in my own work, but because I care about the future of American education. And I feel strongly that that if Harvard University is is able to get away with redefining plagiarism, it will, will impact every institution in America And it would be more of the downward slide of American education.
2: Well, there's no question. We've only got about a minute or so left, but this whole issue of diversity and equity and inclusion, uh, you've said that this hinders racial progress. Briefly tell us why.
3: Well, a lot of I have a whole book, The Adversity of Diversity, that was published last summer after the Supreme Court decision striking down race based affirmative action. Uh, DEI is affirmative action on steroids, and it violates the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, the way it's being pushed in America, and our civil rights laws. I believe that the courts should strike it down, they will strike it down. And many companies and organizations are backing away from it hopefully harvard university's actions will cause them to they may be the Bud light of higher education other schools will back away
2: well said dr carol swain thank you so much for stepping up and bringing all this to light we appreciate it all right friends coming up a newly released police body cam footage shows the aftermath of an exchange between a former Republican campaign aide and FBI agents that nearly turned violent. Was it by design? Well, we'll discuss it all right after the break, so stay tuned. We'll be back in
0: a moment.
6: Get this free guide at frc.org slash men to learn more about the important role men play in protecting unborn lives.
2: Hey, welcome back to Washington Watch. Great to have you on board with us. Uh, all right, uh, before we get to our next guest, uh, throughout this year we are going to be asking viewers and listeners of Washington Watch to participate in certain polls. We're trying to get some information specifically as it relates to SAGECONS, that of course is spiritually active, governance engaged conservatives, we call them SAGECONS. And so the question for this week uh, is simply this, when it comes to the formation of your worldview, when it comes to the formation of your worldview, how important is the Bible? Uh, Well, we want to uh, get your input on that. So uh, if you would, uh, text us and let us know. You, of course, can find out more by going to TonyPerkins.com. But let us know your thoughts on this. Uh, And also, we'll have results of uh, each of the questions from week to week. All right, let's get into this this last issue. We've got an amazing uh, body cam footage of a situation between some FBI agents and Harrison Floyd, who was a campaign worker in the Trump and, uh, campaign back in twenty twenty, so many questions are arising over this uh, the evidently the FBI agents did not show their badges, did not show their credentials. they did draw guns on Harrison Floyd uh, by a testimony he he thought he was being robbed. Uh, or uh, threatened for whatever reason by some thugs. There's uh, so a lot of questions coming up on this, and we want to try to dive further into it. Joining me now to uh, discuss this, uh, among other things, on how, and how the Department of Justice seems to be targeting conservatives to create a two-tiered system of justice. Uh, joining me now is Bishop Garland Hunt. He, by the way, is the senior pastor of the Father's House in Norcross, Georgia, and he is also the newly announced president of the Douglas Leadership Institute, replacing our dear friend who recently passed away, Dean Nelson. Bishop Hunt, welcome back to Washington Watch. Always great to see you,
5: my friend. Thank you so much, Jody. It's good, good to be with you. It's good to be with you.
2: Well, uh, listen, before we get into this situation with Harrison Ford, let me, ju- I mean, Harrison uh, Floyd, let me first of all just say congratulations to you on your new role. Uh, tremendous organization there, the Douglas Leadership Institute. So many of us both celebrated and, of course, mourned the loss of our dear friend, Dean Nelson, whom you're succeeding. Uh, describe real quickly your your vision for the Douglas Leadership Institute, uh, some initiatives perhaps that you have on the in the works right now. Uh, just real quickly, let's start there, and then we'll transition.
5: Okay. Yeah, well, first, first of all, Jody, it, it's, uh, it's, it's bittersweet, you know, because Dean, uh, Bishop Dean is, was a spiritual son of mine, actually, as well as, I mean, so we've been together for well over 30 years. So I I knew him way before he was married and his family and all that. So I just feel sort of investment in what God was doing with his life. So we certainly know that he had a great legacy that he was establishing as it relates to imparting to the marketplace, those that could change the marketplace and the culture. And he did a great job with that. He organized many, many people together, pastors together, faithless together. So my goal coming in Actually, he asked me, I hate to say it like this on his deathbed, if I could take it over for him. And certainly, it would be my privilege to do so because I feel like he's a part of me. And therefore, as we go forth now, we just want to extend really the culture and the voice of the black community. Uh, And without excuse, uh, the black community has been so impacted by liberal voices. And even now, right now, uh, it's the same thing. I mean, with with, uh, the Biden administration, with, the, with uh, those voices that are trying to influence the black community, but I'm noticing that blacks are beginning to, and a small percentage of blacks are beginning to to stand up and realize that everything that the liberal community is saying, the progressive community is saying is not the right thing for them. So Douglas Leadership uh, Institute is actually based upon the words of Frederick Douglass, that uh, he he, quote, he very astoundly quote, 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 quoted the Bible when he talked about righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach. And that's very much thing We have to exalt righteousness. So in that regard, we have to strengthen the black family. The black family is huge because, you know, most black kids are raised by a single black mother, almost 75% of black young people are uh, raised by one single parent. So the family structure is very, very important. So we're doing everything we can to strengthen the black family. And also also to apply biblical principles to get people involved with civic engagement. Get them involved in the marketplace, get them involved so they can understand biblical worldview. We also look at things like uh, criminal justice reform, how criminal justice impacts the, the community at large, as well as even the black community. We have to have them stand there and understand what justice means, because people are in the street crying out for justice and they're not looking for biblical justice, they're looking for justice for their cause. So we want to really get that straight. And I guess lastly, we talk about economic opportunity also, because that's that's really where the rubber meets the road. How do we provide economic opportunity for a lot of different black communities that desperately need to understand that a liberal way of doing things is not the proper way, but that a conservative biblical approach is freedom for them, even financially. So those are just some of the things that we stand for as an organization. And I have that as my heart and a burden that we have to really transform our communities. And we can't look for somebody outside to do it. We have to do it from within. And the church has to be the beginning of it as a pastor. I believe the church has a responsibility of leading the way and impacting our culture.
2: Well, I can't tell you how thrilled we are. I am personally. I've known you for many years. I think this is a perfect fit for you. And I, I know Dean Nelson years ago introduced me to Frederick Douglass and his his work. And I have read it. Frederick Douglass became one of my heroes. I read everything I could about him. Just phenomenal. And the Leadership Institute there, congratulations and Godspeed to you. All right, uh, let me let me ask you this. Uh, you've always been a passionate advocate for life among other things, and we've seen the Department of Justice targeting pro-life advocates uh, ever since Roe was overturned, but this two-tiered system of justice also applies to people like Harrison Floyd. Uh, give me your thoughts on this.
5: I think that it's a perfect example, unfortunately, uh, Harrison Floyd is, is black, and uh, that, but I think they don't care about color. They, they care about the position that you have. And it's very, very important to recognize that they're used many times the Justice Department and and the advocates to, to weaponize it against those conservative elements. So right now, we're really seeing something that probably has not been seen quite like this in our nation. Uh, most of the time, we fight against this kind of thing, but for the Justice Department, to come clearly against uh, people that are literally a- actually fighting for their freedoms. And Harrison is fighting for his freedom right now, and he's probably, of all those that have been indicted, probably at least able, in terms of wealth, to be able to defend himself, but it seems like the attack against him has been so great because of his his verbal stance that he's been taking it. And, uh, and then for them to come, as I understand, come against him not even identifying themselves as FBI agents. Why would they do that? It's almost like they're inciting something to happen. And Harrison's not one that's gonna back off. And they were almost inciting him without showing the badges, without declaring exactly who they were. And of course that that anybody, because he's been under threats, remember, in this whole process. So he doesn't know who to trust. So that that was a very Absolutely. unfortunate and that happened as it relates to Harrison.
2: Bishop Garland Hunt, thank you so much for joining us today. And again, congratulations on your role at the Douglas Leadership Institute and for getting us this information as we get started on this whole issue with Harrison Floyd. We appreciate your input a great deal. All right, friends, we want to transition to yet another guest who is right on the front lines of this whole issue following the confrontation that Floyd had. Uh, He literally called 911 uh, for the police. He didn't know who he had just fled from. And police body cam footage of that exchange that he had uh, with 911 officers uh, showed that he was extremely flustered. uh, And then he learned from the police that his potential attackers were actually FBI agents deployed from Special Prosecutor Jack Smith. And, you know, this just seems to be yet another example of a weaponized Department of Justice enforcing a two-tiered system of justice. And many people are asking uh, about all of this. Was it somehow a setup? Well, let's Mm -hmm. dive further into it. Joining me now to discuss this is Chris Kacherov. He's the attorney for Harrison Floyd. Uh, Chris, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me, and I, I want to apologize to you for my uh, having to appear by phone. I didn't realize that the interview was today uh, at this time. I thought it was later, but my my mistake. Okay. Look, uh, yeah, no th- this, uh, Yeah, this this case is a, a sad case because there's no reason for any of this to have happened. Uh, you know, I don't believe the FBI agents follow protocol. I'm an, I'm a former uh, police officer myself. And I can tell you right now, that that's the first thing you do, you show your badge. We call it displaying your badge of authority. And that wasn't done, or doesn't appear to have been done. Now I'm sure they may have said something, uh, they're gonna say something different, but I I predict, because I have advanced uh, knowledge of some of the evidence, that it's gonna come out that the, the officers said that they didn't have their, they said they could show their badges to him. Translated, they didn't show him anything. The, the the sad part is that he genuinely was upset about it. He calls the police and then 10 out or about, you know, some, I don't know, five, six hours later, the local police that he called show up to arrest him. I mean, he calls wow. the police and then he gets arrested. And and so the, the question was, what did he do exactly? And the idea is that, that he had some FBI agents are claiming that he touched them and he poked them. I'm just telling you, as a former police officer, I find that incredibly hard to believe look if, if you touched me if you put your finger in my face like they said meaning they that harrison touched his nose or bumped up against him with his chest i'm gonna hook him he's gone he's gonna be in cuffs and you mean to tell me that well you're 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 you were afraid of him because you thought he was uh you thought that he was uh, an mma uh, mixed martial arts artist well guess what uh you have a gun and they clearly were able to flash their guns to him but they didn't flash their badge that's what I think happened, and I think they got caught on it and they left. That's why this didn't happen. No, no rational, reasonable police officer would say that uh, somebody touched them in that manner and they just left. The other thing is they forced yeah, their way into his apartment to the complex. Yeah, but the real issue is, you know, they first forced their way. He's, he's carrying a two and a half year old daughter, and they forced their way into the apartment complex. You see, you have to get into the, the to his apartment by. Swiping a card and that swipe is, lets you in. Well, they put their foot in the door to follow him up the stairs to his unit, and uh, they, they literally uh, start to chase him up the stairs without saying they just said, uh, Let me ask you, you know,
2: this has at least the appearance of a potential two tiered system. All this, just more and more of what we've been seeing so much of. Is it somehow reasonable in your your estimation of the evidence you're seeing to speculate if the agents approached him somehow anticipating that the encounter would potentially lead to violence, and then it would be his word against theirs? As I understand it, FBI agents don't wear body cams for some reason, but does this look like they were provoking well, they, him they have audio to some cams. sort of response?
1: Have, uh, yes, the answer is yes. They have audio cams, which they... Uh, they have audio, but they haven't released it yet, so I can't, I can't speak. I can't. That will that'll be as soon as we get the chance. We're going to try to get those audio cams to show this. But yeah, I, I think they tried to goad him or or prod him rather into doing something. And why do I say that? I don't know these guys from Adam. But what I do know is that these are the same FBI agents who uh, arrested Peter Navarro, and Peter Navarro, who was Trump's one of Trump's advisors, he was indicted for contempt of Congress. But he told them, look, if you get an indictment, he tells, I live real close to the FBI, I'll come turn myself in. And uh, he goes on a trip. Two days later, he's indicted. And as he's traveling through Nashville Airport, these two guys, in in full display of everybody in the public, made a dramatic scene and arrested him. So they were tracking uh, Peter Unreal. Amaro. Well, these are, these are the same two yeah, guys.
2: Yeah, and, the, and that, the same ones.
1: Same ones that did Harrison. the air yeah, so they to Peter Navarro, was they, they they tortured him. I think not tortured in the physical sense, but uh, they went ahead and you know just mocked him while he was in a holding cell, telling him that this is the same holding cell that John Hinckley was in. And he said, Peter Navarro said that he felt wow. that that was, you know, they were trying to to uh, make fun of him and, and make him so. In any event, well,
2: I, I've got to tell you, there is. Grave concern uh, that we're just seeing more and more of a weaponized system of justice, literally targeting individuals like Harrison Floyd, and this is a, a frightening, frightening prospect. Uh, and we just we just lost uh, Chris uh, Kacheroff the the uh, attorney for uh, Mr. Floyd, but. Uh, This whole issue of a weaponized government is increasingly becoming disturbing to literally millions of Americans, and with good reason. This is not the way Lady Justice is supposed to operate, with blindfolds, with fairness, with equity for all American uh, citizens, with justice for all. But we're watching this thing all be turned upside down on its head. And we're going to be continuing to bring this type of information to you. Uh, in fact, this information specifically to get to the bottom of it. All right, friends, that wraps up this week and this day's edition of Washington Watch. Hope you have a fantastic weekend. And we look forward to being with you again next week
0: right here on Washington Watch. God 372-7234. That's one 372 7234